0: in there, but everybody needs an impossible challenge to direct their lives. Next week, Sunday evening, is the State of the Church Address with Communion and Light Fellowship. We have two birthdays today. Brian Rafferty is in the house. Happy birthday. And Matt's mom, Nicole, I think, if I got it right. Did I get that right? All right. Happy birthday to you both. And uh, I'm sure Matt's going to treat you well. And I think that's it. Oh, yes. Lunch. We have lunch today. Immediately after the fellowship, come on over, even if you haven't planned for it. Uh, Isaac has been cooking incredibly hard all week. So we'd love to have you share a meal with us right after church. So thank you, Pastor.
1: I hope you guys. Advent candle here truth and you can participate this morning by having your worship folder open here there'll be a statement for you to say as the congregation and you can participate in that it is a um, great thing to think about Christ at Christmas time and we have also been Doing a devotional on Wednesday night for each one of these um, object lessons that we've been doing on the candles, and so you can participate with us on that Wednesday night if you wish. At uh, uh, at uh, six forty-five, I think is when we actually start. We do begin to talk and chat at six thirty. We do that online. and if you're Not sure how to participate. In that let us know that after the end of the service. But we are using this Advent candle as it's directed here on the front as an object lesson and today uh, our focus will be on the very gift of Christ and it's great to have Andy and Gail come and lead us in this. ...for who you are and that all that you have done. Indeed, it is an indescribable gift to think about Jesus Christ, our Lord, sending the Son to live among us, to achieve perfection, that merit that we would need to stand before you in perfect righteousness... We're thankful for sending the Son, and indeed, as we celebrate this incarnation in our Christmas season, I pray this will not be thoughts that would be lightly on our mind. Thank you, Lord, for uh, not only sending the Son to live among us, but to die, to die for our sin, to atone for everyone, and then in doing so, to unite us to you. Redeem us from the bondage of slavery to sin, to receive us as adopted children into your family, to dwell with you forevermore. I pray the joy of that this season will be something that will incredibly grip our hearts. I'm thankful for all the good gifts that you give us in this life, this season where we enjoy uh, great uh, music and fellowship and food and gift-giving and time with friends and family. All of that are just a shadow of what it will be like to be in your presence I pray for your people that we will long indeed to be in that fullness of joy in your presence. In the meantime, on this side of eternity, I pray that we would redeem the time and respond in great rejoicing uh, for you and look forward to the soon return of Jesus Christ. Pray that you'd bless this day as we uh, come together to praise your holy name May it be received by you, our Heavenly Father, with great delight. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
0: And we'll sing, Oh, come little children. Luke 18, 16 says, Let the little children come to me. 195.
2: morning, church. You can find the account of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 21, and you can find these on page 857 of the Pew Bible. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your abundant grace and mercy that you have shown us in the past year. Father, I pray that we would treasure the greatest gift ever given, Jesus Christ, in our hearts. I pray that each and every one of us would know him as Lord and Savior. I pray that we would be like little children coming to him even newborn babes. I pray that we would hate sin, Father. I pray that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I pray that the glorious truth of your coming kingdom would refresh our hearts daily. I pray that you would use these gifts given today to hasten and further the coming of your kingdom, Father. And I pray that this is what would drive us on the glorious truth of one day seeing Christ face to face. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
3: Small.
1: Thank you, ladies, and thank you, church. Kind of hate to see Christmas go. (laughs) It's a joyous time to think specifically of Christ Jesus, our Lord God in flesh, Emmanuel dwelling among us, and hopefully there is a degree in which we celebrate this truth every day. The cradle, though, is just the beginning. It's going to lead to this day that we turn to in our text in the Gospel of John, chapter 19. The cradle is going to lead to the cross. It'll lead to the cross because Jesus must fulfill all promises made. Most notably, the promise that was made in the garden as God cursed the devil. And he declared that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. That's unique to speak of her offspring in that way, her seed. And speaking of that one that would come, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis three fifteen. This is a promise that was made, that God would send a son. Yes, there would be pain and suffering, but in that, it will result in the crushing of the very head of Satan. In the incarnation, Jesus comes. As, Luke, as Matthew reminds us, she will bear a son, And you will call his name Jesus. Jesus, by the way, means Savior. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. (laughs) To crush the head of the serpent, Jesus' heel must be bruised. And that brings us to the cross and where we're looking at it in our text today. We have looked at this chapter and from many different perspectives, we've considered the scripture that is fulfilled, scripture that was specifically mentioned here, even otherwise seemingly insignificant details. But they were prophesied hundreds of years before they actually occurred, and then they occurred in time. Mostly this was other people doing things that God had prophesied. Here today we're going to focus on Christ himself and what he says. So here he's fulfilling prophecy, and not in a passive way, but in a very active way. And perhaps you've heard this before, either in books you might have read, sermons you might have heard, uh, this idea of the sayings of Christ on the cross. In the Gospels, you can compile together seven specific sayings, if you will, of Christ as he hung suspended between heaven and earth. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, as Luke records for us in Luke 23. In addition, Luke also records the repentant sinner next to Jesus who asks for forgiveness. And Jesus says, This day you will be with me in paradise. Here in John, we'll Look and find a statement Jesus says as he looks down to those saints that are just below his feet Woman, behold your son. Matthew records for us a statement in which Jesus Christ, abandoned by God, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Back to John 19, we'll find the phrase, I thirst. And another one. It is finished. And then finally, the seventh saying, Luke records, in Luke 23, (coughs) into your hands I commend my spirit. Now I suggest to you this, that these are not the only words that were spoken by Jesus on the cross. These are the ones that were recorded by the gospel writers. John will tell us at the close of this gospel that there are many other things that Jesus did and were we to have all of them written down, the world itself couldn't contain all that he had done. John, in his writing, in his gospel, (coughs) gives us the reason specifically why he recorded what he recorded. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, These things are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. That is, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. That is, he is divine. He is God incarnate. And then by believing that, you might have life in his name. And that is crucial Because you need life. Death is coming. It is an appointment that we will all meet. What we need is life. And that's why Christ has come to save us from our sin, the consequences, which is death. That's all that really matters right now. Believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. Jesus tasted death so that you could taste life. Our focus this morning is going to be on the particular words as John records them. Jesus speaks on the cross. It's in this gospel, and so let's narrow it down. The setting is found in verse 16, and we've been over this a number of times. Jesus is delivered to be crucified. And if you're just joining us here, this delivering over to be crucified, of course, it is done so after he's been declared not guilty multiple times by the Roman authorities. The only thing the Jews could find out about Jesus was that he claimed the very truth that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And for that, here he is. And in fact, God will even speak through inanimate objects because over this head, his crime simply says, king of the Jews, which is absolutely true. He is king. He is Lord of all. Verse 16, he is delivered to be crucified. Who delivered him to be crucified means he is beaten within an inch of his life at this point. He is humiliated. He is mocked. And then he's impaled on a wooden cross. Now he's hanging. And in verse 25, you get the picture he looks down. There's a group of saints right there. And he has something to tell them. And something to tell us. So let's listen. Beginning in verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her (coughs) to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch. And held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray right now that you will send the Holy Spirit to communicate this great words of life to your people. May those who know Christ know him more abundantly. For those who really don't know Christ, may this be the very day in which they breathe the breath of life. May Christ be praised both now and forevermore. Amen. Well, I think you've noticed here then, as I pointed that out, there are three specific statements in this Section that we're looking at in the Gospel of John. Jesus hanging there, if you will, suspended between heaven and earth, and he has something to say. I think we should listen. If you're taking notes, make a note of it here. He says, first of all, to really to Mary and John, Behold your son, behold your mother, verse 26, verse 27. To all of mankind, he says, I first, in verse 28. In verse 30, primarily to God, simply this declaration, it is finished. Let's consider those statements that Jesus makes as recorded by John. This first one, found in 26 and 27, <clears throat> this is a statement that he is making to John the writer of this gospel, and to his mother Mary. Jesus is hanging on the cross essentially alone. There's a few, not many, that are gathered, not hundreds, not thousands. Many had followed him before, but for various different reasons. When he fed thousands of people, he declared, they're following me for what they can get out of it. Here are just... it's whittled down to just a very few. Jesus is suffering great anguish. Mentally, emotionally, and physically. He is in great pain. But even in the midst of all of this, and he really did suffer all of it, of great anguish as you can imagine, he takes the time and turns his attention to his biological mother, if you will, Mary, who is right there, he turns down to her and says simply this, Woman, behold your son. And then to this other disciple, as we pointed out previously, this would be John, he tells him, Behold your mother. This is a small group, only A few gathered together here at the foot of the cross. No doubt they were in great emotional and mental anguish as well. Distraught, would be too mild of a word. They are present here. They demonstrate their love for Jesus Christ. They could potentially, all of them, could potentially be rounded up to be delivered over to be crucified, or a fate similar to it. Their devotion to Jesus Christ is greater than their fear, and so here they are gathered around a small, courageous group in the presence of one who is being executed by Rome. With soundness of mind... In the most challenging of all circumstances, Jesus sees that everything is put in order. Nothing is forgotten and nothing left undone. This is, this is what is going on here. Jesus would have been the eldest son, obviously, of Mary. She was a virgin when she brought forth her first son. It's a miraculous birth conceived by the very Holy Spirit of God as we have already looked at but in that culture he certainly would have had the responsibility then physically humanly speaking if you will to care for his mother as she aged by implication here in the text Jesus uh, speaks to his mother in a way in which she would be a widow at this point Joseph isn't mentioned it's Most folks would conclude at this point that Joseph is deceased, marries a widow. A widow in that culture would not have a lot of options for herself. She wouldn't have been able to get a job and provide for herself. James, writing in the first century, also described true religion, saying truly religion is one that takes care of widows and orphans. Particularly in that culture, these were people who could not help themselves. They had no other ability, and those that had true religion would help the very helpless. Paul gives specific instructions to the church. You can find that in 1 Timothy 5, how the church was to care for those types of people. Widows are brought out specifically. Older ones as well. In this case, here Jesus, he's hanging on the cross. He's got a lot going on, (laughs) as you can imagine. But he does take the time to take care of this simple responsibility. He doesn't leave it up to chance. He actually gives a declaration of a command. Behold your son, behold your mother, is what he says. Both Mary and John recognize his authority to make such a statement, they are obliged to do so and they do follow his directive because after all, Jesus is Lord, (laughs) right? But if you think on this and what's going on here too, in this assignment of Mary to John's care, He also demonstrates a unique bond within the family of God that I think can be easily overlooked. Jesus' brothers, if you remember, they are not believers at this point. They're not redeemed. So Mary's other children are still there, and they could have taken up the reins, but they're not believers And so what does he do? He points to John, who is a believer. We'll hear about these brothers of Christ. They do come to Christ, but it is later. It is after his resurrection. It's not at this moment. They are together with the other disciples in the other upper room. You can find it in Acts chapter 1. They were together praying. But at this point, on the cross, Jesus transfers his responsibility not to his biological siblings, but to a spiritual son. And I hope at this point you can see the direct application to the people of God, to the church specifically. There are many different descriptions of the church by way of analogy. You can think of some, can't you? A flock, a building, a body. But one of the most personal and endearing is that of a family. In fact, Paul and I were actually talking about that. It just happened to be last week. And it isn't that we're trying to manipulate this and cause this to happen. This just is, and we do need to be aware of it. This is how... Christ would speak and talk about his relationships in a spiritual sense superseding physical and biological. I'm not suggesting you would abandon responsibilities and connections but recognize the significance of our union with Christ and therefore union with one another. I'll read this text from Matthew chapter 12 as Jesus is being interrupted. In verse 46 of Matthew, while speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see that? It's a unique relationship. It is one that is not temporal, but one that is eternal. Eternal. It will transcend time and go through eternity. And here is a recognition Jesus in in demonstrating this and teaching this. He is demonstrating that here cultivate this type of relationship. Your spiritual family, if you will. This metaphor is used quite a bit in scripture but and rather than spend too much time on it because we would like to look at some of these other statements i'll just walk you through a single book on doctrine and here i'd like for you to turn to see it for yourself the book of ephesians the book of ephesians is a great book compacted first with great doctrine in the first few, 3 chapters and then the following It moves over to what we call practical application of the household codes. So let's just walk through it and take a quick tour of how this doctrine of salvation, of what happens for those that are united to Christ, some of the descriptives of that new relationship with Christ. It is, and I'm arguing, it is beyond the individual and it goes to All who are in Christ to where they they have a unique relationship one with another that is eternal. In chapter one, we'll start there. Of course, God is blessed in verse three great praise to God the Father and of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us how in Christ with every spiritual. Blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. That is the condition of those that are in Christ. They are in Christ and therefore holy, set, a, set apart. They are blameless because Christ bore all blame, all guilt, and are in the state of belovedness or love. I don't care if nobody loves you. If you're in Christ, you couldn't be more loved. I don't care if all of your love relationships, if you will, fail. Recognize the belovedness of those that are in Christ. It is an eternal love characterized by grace and mercy, and faithfulness. It is beautiful to see it represented in this life to some degree, but it doesn't hold a candle to this reality that we're looking at. In his predetermined plan, that's the next verse, verse 5, he predetermined or predestined, this is the destiny of those that are in Christ, for us, what? Notice the language for the adoption to themselves as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. This was God's plan all along. And I'll stop here and just think about this word adoption because sometimes it's portrayed in popular literature or entertainment movies that what, as if there's some sort of lesser relationship. But those of you who have been adopted and those in this world in which we live or know of those that have, you know that isn't true. There is a unique relationship in the adoption because in this life it doesn't happen by accident. It's intentional and it's a beautiful way to describe that. This is God's blessing these who are in Christ then as sons and it's all done intentionally. He said, I'll have that one and that one and that one. It is all God's doing. It is his choice. And he adopts them and they aren't lesser children <laughs> in a, in a way they're very much more special. A unique relationship. They're in a family because not of a biological sense, but through a covenant and a covenant of love. You say, well, how can someone love someone that is adopted, or whatever, as much as someone that is biologically connected? It is through this covenant of love. And let me give you an analogy. Try marriage, right? Here you have, that always... Interests me how two people with no real biological connection, all of a sudden they are one, right? And that is the strongest connection that they have. There's a mystery to it. But this covenant of love is what's being explained to be a son and daughter of God. Chapter two. Let's jump there and verse eighteen. It is through Christ then that you would have access in one spirit, that is through the Holy Spirit to the Father. So we we have this connection. It is a connection by the very Holy Spirit of God dwelling in the life of believers. And so then, how what does that do to the status of the believer? You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, with all of those that are in Christ, and note here, members of the household of God. And might I say that is an eternal household. There are all kinds of covenants and agreements that could be broken here in this temporal life, and death will bring about some of that breaking of that relationship. But in Christ, there is eternal life, and that relationship will never be broken. This fellow members, the saints together, are then of the very household of God himself forever. Flip over to the chapter 3 and verse 14. And... I'll tell you, if you want a good devotional, spend some time thinking on these things. But I always get choked up when I hear Paul praying in verse 14 of chapter 3. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. And as he's bowing in prayer, what is he thinking about? Verse 15 from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He's talking about those that, in context, those that are in Christ. There are those that are in Christ, alive in Christ, that are in heaven. There are those that are alive in Christ who are here on earth, and yet they are one family, together, united, whether they have deceased or whether they are still continuing on. He's praying then for the family of God that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, in your inner being. Man, that, that's a, a powerful phrase, isn't it? Pray that. You want to know what should I pray for my beloved, for people I care about? Pray that you would be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. And what would that strength look like? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, that is the love of God in Christ, you may have strength to then comprehend with whom? With all the saints, you notice the unity here, what is being put together. All the saints, what, what are you going to think about? That what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you might be filled with the fullness of God. Now, him is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. I can ask or think of a lot of things. It isn't enough. It will never exceed his grace, his mercy, his love, his faithfulness. To that, to him be then glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Note this, throughout all generations. How long? Forever and ever. Amen you see the eternal weight of glory put on this? That the saints in Christ Jesus, the church, that's what he's describing here, that throughout all generations, those in past, those present, and those future would be forever and ever glorifying Christ. I'll finish this section with this, the next chapter, as it begins. Yeah, before it gets to practical application of this doctrine, Paul has to have one more statement. Somebody asked me over the Christmas break, you know, I guess they said, you know, is it, is it really difficult being a pastor and have to deal with people and all that stuff? And I know that some people have said that and complained about it. But I had to confess, no. <laughs> I said, because they're all on the same page. They're in Christ. And I, and I don't take that for granted. I know things could uh, flare up and things could happen. But I'll tell you what. It's been a great privilege to serve Christ in this community with these people, with you. Knowing that I can preach Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll hear it and want more of it. I can spend time preaching god 's word and and not give a lot of flowery stories and you 'll hear it and you 'll come back and back it It is great because of the unity of the faith that is in genuine believers and 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 that is what is being emphasized here in chapter Four, as he begins in verse four look at that here 's the phrase <coughs> that describes a true body of Christ. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called in that one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. and Christ, and God making his appeal through us that we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, and that is my message, be reconciled to God. How will you be reconciled to God? How will this relationship be restored to peace, which is prior enmity? For our sake he made him to be sinned who knew no sin on the cross, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Father, what an incredible gift that you have given us that we commemorate in this very season, Christ our Lord. I pray for each one. Anyone who is not reconciled to God, I pray that today would be indeed the day of reconciliation. For those that have been, I pray it would be a great day of reminder of what we have in Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. Show your glory in all things. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Take a moment, beloved, where you're at now to think on these things.  ¶¶ bring out in our ears. May we think of our uniqueness, those of us who are in Christ, been called to a precious family with one another in Christ to be with one another and worship you uh, forever and ever in eternity. To recognize there isn't a moment that we might go through that Christ doesn't fully understand as a faithful high priest and that indeed you have paid it all you have Finished and accomplished redemption. We praise you in this day in Christ's name, Amen. Amber, I wasn't sure what we were going to do. I knew it wasn't going to be a little town of Bethlehem. I was thinking Calvary covers it all, but I like Jesus paid it all. What number are you at? Two
4: forty-nine.
1: Two forty-nine. Let y'all want to sing that? Jesus paid it all. Let's stand and sing. Yeah, I like it. Shout it out!
0: Father, we pray that you would have us to dwell in the shelter of the Most High and abide in the shadow of the Almighty. May the Lord be our refuge, our fortress, and our God in whom we trust. Father, we do pray now as we depart that you would bless all those of us who uh, will be coming again and. Father, we pray that you would bless the food that we're about to partake of to our bodies and the fellowship around the table. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen.